Well, good morning, church. Let's open up our Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. If you do not have a copy of God's Word in front of you, just put your hand up right now. Our ushers are coming forward. We'd love to put a Bible in your lap so you can continue to follow along. Titus chapter 2, 1 to 8, and it's on page 579 in those Bibles that are being handed out right now. Just a reminder, we're in our series right now. Uh, Fourth message in our series, verse by verse, line by line, through the book of Titus. And the series title is God's Heart for the Church. And it's answering the question, what is the blueprint God has given for what a healthy church, what healthy believers are to look like? Recall, a healthy church equals healthy believers. And healthy believers equal a healthy church. So we need a reminder of what is doctrinal purity for? Why has God given this book, this trustworthy word of God to the church. Let's get a reminder. What is doctrine, by the way? If we remember, our small groups dove into this this week. What is doctrine? You'll see it on the screen. What the whole Bible teaches about some particular topic. What the whole Bible teaches, Wayne Grudem says, about a particular topic. Doctrine is such a protection for the church. It keeps you from taking one verse and spinning it out of context to mean whatever you want it to mean, however you want it to mean it. Doctrine is what the entire Bible, systematic theology, what the entire Bible says about a particular topic. We don't get to pick and choose what we want the truths to mean. And recall the purpose of doctrine, you'll see it on the screen, it leads to a greater knowledge of God, leading to a greater love for God, and that leads us to a faithful life rooted and lived out in God. Let me say it again, super important. Doctrine leads to a greater knowledge of God, leading to a greater love for God, which leads to a faithful life rooted and lived out in God. Remember, you and I cannot truly love a God we do not truly know. Who God says he is. We cannot do that. We're worshiping some figment of who we want God to be if we are not rooted in sound doctrine. And so today we're going to start a two-part mini-series, if you will, within this series on What does a life of sound doctrine, a life rooted in the true gospel, look like practically as it is lived out? Remember, the purpose of doctrine is not just information. We're not just going to be doctrine full and do nothing with it. The purpose of doctrine never leads us just to information, but to transformation as the living and active word of God takes root in our lives. So it's one thing to say, great, we need sound doctrine, but loved ones, what does that practically look like on a day-to-day level? When you're at the grocery store, when you're parenting your children, when you're in the classroom, students, when you're at work, in your marriage, what does a lifestyle of sound doctrine look like as it is lived out? And we will see very clearly here that God's heart for his church is a heart for believers to live with sound doctrine. And you say, why is this so important? Why is Paul going to devote most of chapter 2 to this topic? Because there's a problem as you look around today. And it is this. Increasing number of people are confessing Christ, but aren't growing and living like Christ. We looked at false teaching last week. We looked at false gospels last week. But we see all around us that increasingly, people who confess Christ aren't growing and living like Christ. Their walk is not matching their talk. Their progression in Christ is not matching their confession of Christ. It's a sobering word for us today. And the result of this is that the truth of what it means to live out the true gospel, the truth of what it means to live out sound doctrine is being increasingly distorted, twisted, and compromised as secular culture shapes the church more than sacred scripture. There's too much world in the church and not enough church in the world. 
secular culture instead of sacred scripture shaping the culture of the church. And, and as a result, the witness of the true gospel that the church is to be to the world is increasingly watered down, compromised, and reviled by the very culture it is meant to influence. And so here in our text today, God lays out a vision for what gospel-centered community rooted in sound doctrine is to look like. And we see two essential truths we must hold to, loved ones, to see the church built up, healthy, and rooted in Christ so it will endure, not compromise, and be a faithful witness to the world around it for Christ. We see two essential truths here. And as we want to honor the authority of God's word, let's stand together as we read Titus chapter 2, verses one to eight. Teach sound doctrine. Verse one, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in the faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Hear the word of the Lord, loved ones. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Well, the first thing we see here in this section of text is this, that a life pleasing to God is rooted in sound doctrine. It affirms the lifestyle of the truth. Gospel fruit. It affirms the lifestyle of the truth, gospel fruit. And the question that we are confronted with in these first eight verses is this. Right doctrine leads to right behavior. Where am I not living out the truth? Right doctrine leads to right behavior. Where am I not living out the truth? Look at verse 1. Paul's very clear. Remember, the tone of this book is very urgent. There's not a lot of fluff Paul's using. The church is in desperate need right now, so he just gets straight to the point. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Let's get some context here. Context is key. The apostle Paul, remember, he had planted churches on the island of Crete with Titus. Now, you'll see a picture of Crete. It's in southern Greece. There it is. You'll see it on the screen. All right? Picture of Crete, and he's with Titus, who was his son in the faith. Now, also, Timothy was Paul's son in the faith as as well, most likely had been led to Christ by Paul. And recall, the churches that he's planning here were, have, were now approximately two to three years old. Paul had left Crete to continue on another missionary journey. He leaves Titus to oversee the establishment of these churches. And he's just finished instructing Titus on how to deal with the false teachers that were rising up, called the Judaizers. Now you have to remember, the the believers in these churches, they were brand new believers. They weren't rooted and grounded in sound doctrine. So they were being led astray by these false teachers, and we looked at those in detail last week. Because these false teachers are now rising up and threatening to divide or destroy the church. How? With corrupt doctrine, with teaching a false gospel, and living lifestyles that were no different from the culture around them. And remember, the thrust of Titus is to equip the church as an evangelistic witness. And so here's a problem, because these teachers are living the very immoral life that was known in Crete to be living. The people of Crete had a reputation for immoral lifestyles, and the church was taking that on. And they were leading others astray with it, and thereby compromising that evangelistic witness of the church to the culture. And that's why Paul starts out by saying emphatically, teach what accords with sound 
doctrine. He says here, in light of what I've said about these false teachers, in light of what they're doing, in light of what's happening, in the lifestyles they're living, and the false gospel they're promoting, he says, you teach. That means, Greek word there for teach means to preach or to instruct what accords with sound. That is true, healthy, uncorrupted doctrine. As it applies specifically to the lifestyle applications that we are called to from it. Sound doctrine doesn't lead us, should not lead us just to information, but there's lifestyle application as there is lifestyle transformation. So what does it mean? He's like, Titus, you need to teach this. Teach what the life of a Christ follower is truly supposed to look like when it's founded on the truth of God's word. What is the life of a Christ follower to look like? Now, now just think about what Paul says here, okay? False teachers rising up in the church, church threatening to be divided. We saw last week com- complete families being overthrown in their faith as a result of this. And Paul comes to Titus and he says, here's the strategy. Here's the strategy of confrontation. Here's the strategy of how to contend for the faith. He says, you want a silence of false teachers? You want to have faithful, uncompromised evangelistic witness to the culture that's around you? Here's what you do. You preach. You preach and you teach what is in line with sound doctrine. Why? Why? Out of all the things, he's like, here's six evangelistic crusades you could do and you could take a stand and just discredit these false teachers. He says, preach and teach what is in accordance with sound doctrine. Why? Because we must understand what Paul knew here. That the most effective and faithful witness is the life of one who has been radically transformed by Jesus Christ. No question. The most faithful evangelistic witness the church can have is for believers who are on fire for Jesus Christ and have had their lives radically changed by him and are rooted increasingly in the sound doctrine from him. No question. They are distinct from the culture around them. And this is the life that God uses to draw others to himself. Not one that tries to blend in, to be relevant. And you say, well, wait a second, how can this happen? I mean, wait, wait, we, we've made evangelism so hard made it so complicated. And yeah, there's a place for street evangelism. We did that as a church. There's a place for those things. But they cannot compromise for this. We cannot make up for this as our foundation. You say, well, wait, how can this happen? I mean, just preaching? Just preaching God's word? I mean, what, what can that do? Isn't this just information? Loved ones, listen, we must understand this. That Bible you have right in your hand right now, This is the living and active word of God. This is the all-sufficient, inerrant, living and active word of God that every time it goes forth, it will not come back void and will achieve the purpose for which it is is sent. It is God-breathed, God-given, and God-glorifying. And as we let that word get in us, and as it is taught in a healthy and sound way as God intended, and we humble ourselves under it, not sit in pride and be like, yeah, well, I think I know better than God. No, no, no. We humble ourselves under the authority of God's word. It never leads us to just having more information. It always leads us to transformation. Always through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is how the gospel life is lived out faithfully and is a faithful witness to the world around us. They see lives of distinction. So that brings up a question. What does the gospel life or a life rooted in sound doctrine look like And how is it lived out? And so what we see here in this next section of the text, we see four different groups of people across all different ages. Now here's the thing. Every single person in this room is going to fit into one of these categories. It's like the Holy Spirit would knew we'd look one way out, right? Yeah, but I'm the exception. No, no exception. Okay? All right, we're all going to fit into one of these. And the first thing we see from the gospel life is this. He, He goes after here in a great way. He goes after the older men. Look at verse 2. He says this. Paul goes, Older men are to be sober-minded. 
They're to be dignified, self-controlled, sound in the faith, in love and in steadfastness. See, older men, he's talking about in general the description of men 40 and over at this point, okay? 40 and over. And he says they're to be sober-minded. What does that mean? Well, the Greek means this. They have godly priorities. These are men that value what God values. They are men that love what God loves and they honor what God honors. If, it, if something matters to God, it matters to them. That's what being sober-minded is. They're clear thinking. They're alert. They're being watchful. They're standing firm in the faith. They're, they're level-headed. They're wise in decision-making. They're not rash. Well, that sounds good. Let's just do it. Oh, this sounds good. Well, let's just do that. No, no, no. They're level-headed. They're not losing their cool. They're wise in decision-making. Proverbs 4, 7 is a banner over their life where it says, whatever you get, get wisdom. Whatever you get, get understanding. These are men of wisdom. They don't just rush into things. They're level-headed. They're not driven by how they feel in a moment. They're not driven by anger. Remember, feelings can be great followers, loved ones, but they are horrible leaders. They're not driven by their feelings. They're driven by faith. Faith in the Son of God. So they are to be sober-minded, but look what he says next. They are to be dignified they are to be dignified this means worthy of respect they are to be worthy of respect due to honorable character they're upholding honorable character by the power of the holy spirit in their eyes what is honorable character here it is a purity purity we looked at qualifications for elders a few weeks back and we see they're one woman men Internally, in their thoughts, externally, in their actions, there's an internal and external purity. They're not looking at pornography. They're not flirting with other women. They are dignified. They're not, here's the thing, they're not just fighting for their own purity. They're fighting for the purity of their wives or their future wives by not engaging in sexual immorality with them. That's the reality. And you can see in our culture how this is rampant across the board, right? But men of God are called to be dignified, worthy of respect due to honorable character, purity, and their wisdom. They, these men, it also means here, they don't take delight in inappropriate humor. Inappropriate humor. I'm a dad, by the grace of God, of four little boys, the supper table can get really out of control really fast if we don't nip this in the bud. Potty humor. Yeah, you're laughing, dude. I know, I know, I see you. That's reality. That's my little guy, Micah. Love him. But that's the reality. They're not laughing at vulgar stuff. They're not making inappropriate Comments or laughing at jokes when they're in the shop just to be one of the boys. Really? Where's the witness in that? They're not talking in defiling or demeaning ways about the wife when they are behind her back. Men, little tip of advice, never refer to your wife as the wife. Don't do it. These are men are dignified. You look around the landscape today, there's a lot of boys in men's bodies. That's the reality. Where's the men in men's bodies? Where's the men fighting for purity, for dignity, for honor, for respect, for purity, for their families, contending for the faith? Where's that? Of course the culture wants to take the fight out of you and me, men. Of course it does. Because we're called to lead our families. We are called to fight for the purity in our marriages. And there's so many men saying, I'm a Christian, and yet they're not fighting for purity. They're not fighting for dignity. They're not fighting for the honor of Jesus Christ in their relationships. And the witness is compromised. 
They don't engage in anything that's questionable. If I could sum it up, these men, biblical men, are called not to be just one of the boys. They are called to act like men. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14 says this. Be watchful. There it is, alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like a man and be strong. And let all that you do be done in love. There's our charge, men. Modeled by our Savior perfectly, who's ready to equip us for that battle. They are called to be self-controlled, sober-minded, dignified. The word self-controlled here means this. They are increasingly under the command of God. They are under mental and emotional control. They don't lose it in conversations with others. Do you ever think I was listening to a conversation, I was doing sermon prep the other day at the table next to me, and it was almost like a badge of honor. Man, I just lost it on that guy. Really? Is that a, is that a badge of honor for you? Not the man of God. This guy is sound. This guy is self-controlled. People know they can approach him and he's not going to lose it on them. They don't have to be intimidated or afraid of him. They don't have to walk on eggshells around him. He acts with common sense and lives with right priorities. He's curbing the fleshly impulses. He's not gluttonous. He's not looking at porn. He's, he's, here it is, here it is, what it means to be self-controlled. This, this is a guy living on a budget. He's living on a budget. You know one of those things, you put your money in, you tell your money where it's going before you wonder where it went at the end of the month? He lives on one of those. And here, he doesn't just set it up, he sticks to it. He stewards the resources that God has given faithfully he's not lazy he's not binge watching netflix or trolling facebook or instagram for hours but they make the best use of time because he has right priorities he's investing where men of god are called to invest his family the people around him his church he's self-controlled next he's sound in the faith That means a healthy, uncorrupted faith. He has a daily, notice this, a daily walk with the Lord. He's not just calling in his Jesus time when he feels like, well, no, I'm going to stay up late and watch the Raptors. It means I'll just sacrifice my time with the Lord tomorrow morning and then maybe I'll catch it up later. This man, older men, as we are called, a man living under sound doctrine has a daily walk with the Lord. He's not compromising because he knows, as we have to understand, that apart from Jesus Christ, we can do nothing. Everything you're reading right now, everything you're about to read, Jesus tells us that himself in John 15, 5. Apart from me, loved one, you can do nothing. We are called to contend for the faith. And every day this man gets up and says, I don't know exactly what's going on here. I'm really tired, but I'm going to contend for the faith today. He's got a daily walk with the Lord. He knows what he believes, and he doesn't just know what he believes. He knows why he believes it. This is what sound doctrine moves us to. To defend is to contend. He knows why he believes what he believes, and he has a strong conviction of the truth. He hangs on to the trustworthy word and can recognize error and not be blown around by every wind and wave of doctrine. He hangs on to the trustworthy word that has been passed down from Jesus Christ. Remember, we said this together before the the service today in our pre-service prayer time. If it's true, it's not new, and if it's new, it's not true. He hangs on to the trustworthy word of sound doctrine with full conviction, no matter what happens in the culture. Here he is, he's a man of love. Of course, this is the overflow of being sound in the faith. As he grows in his love for God, he grows in his love for others. He loves others as God prefers. He seeks the benefit of others before himself. This guy's mentality, his banner is you before me, not what I can get, not you serve me, what I get out of this deal, and maybe I'll think about serving you. This is a man who lays his life down in the image of Jesus Christ as Christ has laid down his life for us. 
for his family, for his church, for his friends. This is a man of love. Another one, he's called to be steadfast. He does, it means he doesn't quit. He doesn't quit when it gets hard. We live in a culture that glamorizes quitting. Oh, your marriage is hard? Just quit. Just go get another one. He doesn't quit. He is unmoved and patiently endures in his purpose and loyalty to the faith, that is, loyalty to his king, even in the greatest trials and sufferings. Even when that, it's costing him relationships, it's costing him friendships, he hangs on to the trustworthy word without swaying. He is steadfast in his faith. If I could sum that up, it is this, men. The call to the gospel life is the call to biblical manhood. A lifestyle of sound doctrine is the call to biblical manhood. See, here's what we have to understand, gents. True manhood is not based on the size of your beard. True manhood is not based on the size of your muscle. True manhood is not based on the size of your resume, on the size of your car. True manhood is not based on the size of your paycheck. True manhood is based on the size of the gospel in your life. There it is. There's biblical manhood. 101. How's the lifestyle of the gospel in your life? Why? Because that's the character of the greatest man who ever lived. Our Savior, Jesus Christ. So men... Ask yourself the question. Humble yourself under God's word and ask right now. Where are you not living out the truth? Where are you not living out this truth? Just look at that list. Where am I not? Be honest. Where do you need to repent and say, Jesus Christ, I need you. Give me the strength, the desire to act like a man. All right, women. Older women. He moves on. Verse three. He says this. Older women, likewise, that means in the same way, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Again, older women, around 40 plus at this point. Now, this just doesn't mean, hey, young men, same thing for you. It doesn't mean, well, I'll wait till I get to 40 and then I'll do that stuff. No, 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 we're not off the hook. Don't do that. All right? That's not what we're talking about, but he's specifically giving some characteristics here. 40 plus. He's, what are you to be? Reverent in behavior. What does that mean? Holy dignified in your actions. See, it's the same as dignity that we talked about just with the men. Dignified actions, words, thoughts are suited to the sacred character of God. Think back to your conversations this past week. Was your conversation suited to the sacred character of God in how you spoke about your kids and how you spoke about your husband and how you spoke about your friends and how you spoke about your coworkers? Was it suited to the sacred character of God? Your thoughts, your actions, think about that. They are to be reverent in behavior. Here it is. Not a, not a slanderer, he goes on to say. This is a woman that speaks the truth in love. She doesn't gossip or criticize to hurt someone. People know they can trust her because she speaks the truth in love and isn't going to backstab those around her. And then look at the discipleship here. They are to teach what is good and train the young women. See, they are to share, instruct, model what is honorable in God's eyes and what he says is good for what biblical womanhood looks like. They are to disciple the next generation of younger women in this. They make disciples from sound doctrine. So question, ladies. Where are you not living out this truth? You say, where am I not reverent in my behavior, in my conversation, in my thought life? Young ladies, ask yourself. Young men, ask, just when you all need to ask that question. Am I teaching on what is good? 
am I helping disciple others in godliness? Or am I just leaving that to others? Okay, older men, older women, and now we move on. Young women, young women, zero to 40. Young women, look at verses four to five. It says this. They are to teach what is good and then so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. That the wor- why, why, why? That the word of God may not be reviled. There's the witness piece again. Not a compromised witness. And so young women, the first thing we see here is that they are to love their husbands and children. The word love there mean, is phileo. It means an affectionate embrace of one's husband and children as a high calling. Ladies, it is a very high calling in God's eyes for you to be affectionate towards your husband and your children. No question. Man, our culture will try to beat that down and say it's all found out there, high calling. No, 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 no. High calling starts in a home. Same for men too. It starts in the home. Loving their husband and children as a stewardship from God. They are to love their children. Here's the discipleship piece again. By teaching and modeling the gospel and discipling them in it. And they are to model for them a healthy marriage with their husband. What a healthy gospel-centered marriage looks like. And from that, They are to be self-controlled. He moves on, self-controlled. Again, same thing as with the men. Curb one's impulses. Curb one's desires. Use common sense and, and good judgment in your finances. Use good judgment with your time, with your emotions. They are to be self-controlled. They are to be pure, it goes on to say. What this means is this, a one-man woman, internally and externally. Purity, devoted to one man. Not flirting, not seeking satisfaction with other men. One man, woman, sexually pure, inside and out. And here's the thing, living, what that means, pure, living with modesty. Now you may say up here, I mean, like, uh, yeah, easy for you to say, man. Have you been to the store lately? Do you know how hard it is to get some decent summer clothes? Actually, I do. I live with my wife. Ladies, ladies, hey, Grace, I, I know it's hard. I know it is. But it's worth it. It's worth it. It says, all hail the king in a culture that is moving away from it. Fight for the purity of your marriage and your family, future marriages. Self-controlled, pure, and here it is, working at home. Working at home. That may feel like vinegar going down to some of us right here. Well, let's make sure we're not distorting that with culture's view of what this means. It means caring for the home. Inclined, the Greek there means inclined to domestic affairs. Now, when you think about this, you think of the homemaker images of the day. Well, I don't want to be barefoot and pregnant in my kitchen. That's, isn't that culture's way of doing that? There's your homemaker today. Is that the homemaker in God's eyes? Everyone say no. Oh, that, that was weak. Everyone say no. No, that's not God's image of a homeworker. Thanks, Mike. I love it, man. All right, but here's the thing. Don't misunderstand and don't let culture twist and distort what Paul is saying here, what God is saying to us today. He's not saying this. He's not saying women must only work in the home and that domestic activities must have all their attention all the time, 24-7. Okay? It's not what he's saying here. I'll show you why in a minute. So he's not saying here that women have the sole responsibility to do all the work in the home and that the husband and kids never have to do anything to support them. Dudes, do you know how to cook? Give it a shot. You say, I don't know how to cook. Ask your wife. If she doesn't know how to cook, get a date night, watch the Food Network, and then go try it out. 
okay? It's not like, well, it's all my wife's job to handle the kids. It's all my wife's job to clean. No, pick up the broom and sweep. It's good. You got two arms. You're good. Start sweeping. No, no, no. Hey, hey. We help out, husbands. We support. We lay down our lives. Number three, Paul's not saying here that it is always wrong for women to work outside the home. He's not condemning working outside the home. Culture would have you believe that. Of course, he's twisting a lifestyle of sound doctrine. He's not condemning working outside the home. Just look at the biblical precedent for this. Even in Proverbs 31, there's a woman working outside the home. He's not condemning it. There are plenty, I look around this room, and one of the things I love about planting this church here is the innumerable young women, older women, that are so gifted. I look at all of our students learning and growing and being shaped in the talents and abilities that God has given them. He's gifted them to use those. He's not condemning them for it. He's also not saying that if a woman stays at home, she should just be watching TV all day. Let's watch The Price is Right and my soap operas. No. Let's look at Pinterest. No. Look what it says. Working at home. You are called to work. It's valuable in God's eyes. It is a high calling regardless of what culture says. Who are we going to believe? What God says or what the culture says? One leads to life. One leads to death. It's honorable in God's eyes. Yes, it is a high calling to be changing a diaper. Yes, it is a high calling to be tucking a kid into bed or to cleaning up puke with your husband. It is a high calling. Here's Paul's not saying that women are of less value than men. We see all the way back in Genesis that both women and men were created completely equal, yet given different roles. Created completely equal in God's eyes. See, we tend to equate, and the culture would have us believe that we can equate different roles with different equality. That's a lie. Jesus had a different role than God the Father. God the Father had a different role than the Holy Spirit. Totally equal, all God. Next, here's what it means. Women, not yet, women are to prioritize and preserve the home to ensure that their home is their priority and that the well-being of those in it is taken care of. You say, well, wait a second, let's break this down a little bit. You'll see a quote here from Nancy DeMoss Wolgamuth. I love how she puts this. She says this, what matters here is whether she is giving home the appropriate priority. Is she fulfilling her God-given calling in the home, in the lives of her husband and children? Is she giving them more than just the leftovers of her time and attention? Is she investing her heart and best efforts in these priceless lives? Is she being diligent, productive, and intentional in the care and oversight of her home and in meeting her family's needs. Once again, God is not condemning working outside the house, but he is saying this, that the home needs to be a priority. And if all it gets are the leftovers, something needs to change. And this might present, I get this, this might present some challenges for you and your spouse. We're like, okay, so, so we take this before the Lord. What does this look like for us? And I encourage you guys to do that this week, loved ones. Just come with a humble heart and say, God, what would you have us do? Carry on the way we are. Something need to change. Bring it before the Lord. What does a lifestyle of sound doctrine look like? But go get before the Lord and just ask. Let him search your hearts and ask this. Here's a good litmus question that we were praying through this week. Do I need to work outside the home? Do I need to? Do I need to work as much as I do outside the home? Ask the question, or do I need the status that culture tells me I need to have? Or do I need the lifestyle 
that I want to have? Do I need the comforts that all of this time outside the home brings us financially and otherwise? Just ask the Lord, what is it that you are calling us to do, not the culture? Bring it before him. And he will answer. So they are also, as we move on from that, they are to be kind to others, young women and submissive to their husbands. This is what kindness means, a God-empowered graciousness, mercy and gentleness, as she willing, notice this, kindness, as she willingly places herself under the leadership of her husband in the home and ultimately placing herself under God's leadership of the home. Again, nothing to do with equality here. Totally equal, but given different roles before the Lord. We see that in the Trinity, and he desires that in our marriages. It doesn't mean this. Submitting to your husband does not mean this. Don't don't go here. That she's a doormat, can't have an opinion, or has to follow if he asks her to do something sinful or unbiblical. But she is to follow his leadership. So ladies, ladies, where are you not living out that truth? Young ladies, just take a look. Or older women. It's not confined. And you're like, well, wait a second. I don't have a husband. I see a lot of single ladies here. I don't have a husband. What does this mean for me? Here's what it means. Ask God to show you who he's put around you to get to mentor you to get to mentor you and to grow and be discipled by the Lord. Who has got, we have some wonderful ladies in this church that would love to pour out what God is teaching them into your lives. And then here, and also open up your home to others. Start to practice these things and take, take the service opportunities that God has put in front of you right now to care for others, to show Christ's love to others. Take the service opportunities they have right now. I love the fact I saw our kids team huddled down the hallway this morning getting ready. Take the opportunities. Be an example for others of what a woman of God is called to be. You don't have to wait for a husband to do any of this. You can start now by the grace of our Lord. So older men, older women, Young women, now we get to the young men. Look at verses six to eight. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. That cannot be condemned. So the first thing, young women or young men, zero to 40, we are called to be self-controlled. There it is again in every category. We're called to be self-controlled. This means, again, curb your impulses, your desires, and live with right priorities, guys. Engaging the battle for your mind, your body, and your faith. Paul then tells Titus that he must model, he must model for these young men in all areas. Notice that? In all respects. Not like, well, I'm a good man of God over here, but not here. Not in my marriage, not with my finances, but I do it over here. Uh, In all respects, all encompassing the good works of the gospel that they are called to. And in his instruction to them, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. What does that mean? Here's what it means. Teach pure doctrine with reverence and seriousness and right speech. He is not flippant with God's word. Isaiah 66, this is the one to whom I will look, God says. He who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. He is not flippant with it, making a joke about it. He consults it. And why? So this can't be condemned, we see in verse 8, by those opposing the gospel and wanting to attack its credibility. So you look at you, man. You think you're a Christian? You think you're a Christian? Why would I need Jesus? Look at you. You're no different than me. So they would not be able to attack that faith. So young men, hey, hey, guys, where are you not living out the truth? Think of it this way. Look at that list. Where are you not walking with integrity when no one's watching? What you're looking at, what you're listening to, what you're thinking, what you're doing. Men, men, where are we not walking with dignity, purity? Where are we not 
walking with dignity? Are we vulgar with our mouths? When we get into the locker room, do we become one of the guys? When we get into the shop, do we do shop talk like everybody else? How about where are we not walking in self-control with our time, our finances, our health, with food? This is what it means, guys, self-control. Ask, where is the gospel life being distorted? And humbly, loved ones, this is for everyone, humbly ask him, ask the Lord, and as he shows you, don't fight it. Repent, it leads to life. Repent, turn away from that sin, turn towards him and ask for the grace, the strength, the humility, the power that Christ promises to give you and to all who call on his name. And you're here and you're like, well, I have no hope of doing this. And without Jesus Christ, you're absolutely right, you don't. You cannot live this way in a life pleasing to God without the power of Christ in you by saying, Jesus Christ, I believe you came to earth and died for me because I'm a sinner separated from you, but I need you as my savior. You paid the penalty for my sin. Please, please forgive my sin. You are my Lord. He gives you his power and his grace and says, loved one, there's no condemnation. You're gonna fail at this. I don't know about you, maybe it's just me, but I failed at all these things this week. But it's like, every time you do, he's like, son, daughter, Come on up. There's no condemnation. I'm going to give you the strength. Will you look to me and keep going and see my transformation in your life? That's the loving Savior that we have as an advocate. A life pleasing to God is rooted in sound doctrine. It affirms the lifestyle of the truth, gospel fruit. And lastly is this, and as gospel fruit is seen increasingly in our lives, A lifestyle of sound doctrine upholds the standard of the truth. Gospel witness. Gospel witness. And the question, the last question we're confronted with today is this. Gospel fruit leads to gospel witness. Is Christ's power believable through me? Is Christ's power believable through me? Look at verses 7 to 8, the end of 8. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. See, Paul then gives the reason that every believer is called to a lifestyle of sound doctrine. Faithful gospel witness depends on it. It depends on it. That upon seeing what the faithful gospel life looks like in the home, in the workplace, in the classroom, in the individual, opponents who are looking to discredit the gospel would be proved wrong. That is, they are put to shame and not have any credibility in their attack. They're like, your attack doesn't match up with this guy's life, with this woman's life. Because they see the change. They see the distinction of the Christ follower's life. And they can't help believe that his power is at work in them. That's the life of distinction. This is why the greatest evangelistic strategy, honestly, loved ones, is the on-fire disciple for Christ whose life is rooted in sound doctrine. The transformation. This is why. One commentator put it this way. For a person to be convinced God can save from sin, one needs to see someone who lives a holy life. Yikes. Like, why would a person ever think they need Jesus if the one who claims his name just acts and talks and does the same thing as they do? Lives the same way. Why would they think I need Jesus? You're no different. For a person to be convinced God can save from sin, one needs to see someone who lives a holy life. And when Christians claim to believe God's word and don't obey it, the word is dishonored. And many have mocked God and his truth because of the sinful behavior of those who claim to be Christians. That's the reality. Loved ones, loved ones, this is rampant today. But ask yourself the question, is Christ's power believable through me? Am I living a life of gospel-rooted distinction in how I handle my finances, in how my marriage is, in how I'm raising my children, in how I'm working with integrity at school and with excellence even when others are cheating and cutting corners? Am I upholding a standard of purity when the world says, why bother? Is Christ's power believable through you? See, 
If a person refuses to come to salvation in Jesus Christ, guys, let it be the message that turns them away and not the lifestyle of the messenger. Let it be the message that turns them away, but not the lifestyle of the messenger who claims the name of Christ, but whose lifestyle does not show him. And we can't do this on our own. God will not ask from you what he's not first willing to do in you, loved ones. Be so encouraged. And if you're here and you look at those lists, you're like, man, I am not living a lifestyle of sound doctrine. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Take it before him. Let him restore you. Let him fill you. Let him guide you. And he will. This is why the faithful messenger himself, Jesus Christ, came to earth as fully God and fully man and lived a perfect life that was pleasing to God by bearing the full fruit of the gospel and upholding its standard of truth as the greatest gospel witness who ever lived. And through his death on the cross for our sin and resurrection three days later, he's promised to give us all we need to live the life of the true gospel that bears his name to all who call on him. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 says, he who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. Be encouraged with that truth. He will draw many to himself through it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And I confess, God, parts of this, it just, it's so convicting. And some parts are, are tough to hear. But God, we see it. We see the need for it. We see what culture is promoting just isn't working. And we know that your word will prove true. And God, right now, I pray for such a spirit of humility in this place to say, search me, oh God, and know my heart. I'm not coming with my own agenda. You just search me and know my heart. Show me as an older man, as an older woman, as a younger man, as a younger woman, where am I not living out the truth in the power of the Holy Spirit? Where is Christ's power not believable through me? And God, as you bring those things to mind, I pray we'd be so quick to repent of them and know the comfort of the Lord, not the condemnation, but comfort that comes through repentance. And if there's anyone here that maybe has confessed Christ but realizes they're not saved, or someone who's never confessed Christ as their Savior, they would know they can't do this alone and they need you. Would they turn to you today saying, Jesus Christ, you are my Lord. My life is yours. Forgive me of my sin. And so as we sing this last song, I pray this would not just be words on a screen, but we would really mean it from the bottom of our heart and saying, I let go of all I have just to have all of you, your way, your agenda. And no matter the cost, I will follow you because you are worth it all. Amen.